This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. If you go to our mortgage team's website, you'll find hundreds of testimonials of real Christian radio listeners we've helped. Laura here is a recent friend who is kind enough to share a few words with her local station. I was actually referred to United Faith Mortgage through my mother-in-law. We decided it was time for us to start looking for a house, and I reached out to Kelly. And we found several houses we liked, but, you know, with the seller's market, things kept falling through. But anytime we needed her, she was there for us. She got everything we needed as soon as we asked for it, and she made it work. She made sure that if that was the house that our family wanted, we were going to get that house. They're a wonderful company, and we're just really blessed that we found them in the process, that they helped us get through it, and we are in the home of our dreams, and and our family is so happy. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp., 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. Anti-Israel propaganda. Anti-Semitism. Globally and locally, we see a steady increase in both. What's behind the uptick? Can it be stopped? How should believers respond? That's our destination. Like to join us? Well, you're always welcome here on The Land and the Book. It's the one-hour flyover of the Middle East. And if you stick around, we're going to bring you up to date on all the top headlines from the Middle East. We'll answer your questions as well. I'm John Gager, sitting across from our host, Middle East Authority, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, I'm still reeling from the impact of the documentary, the premiere that Dan Anderson and I attended last night for the film Hope in the Holy Land. Yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't be with you on that. How did you find the movie? It is uh, incredibly powerful from the standpoint of helping you understand the perspective of both sides of the question, you know, whose land is this, who has a right to it, you know, and and really some of the story behind the hatred that, that exists, frankly, on both sides. So I think a balanced perspective, uh, credible, uh, you hear people speak for themselves. It's not like somebody analyzing and assessing their words for them. I'll look forward to seeing that. Well, a full week in the headlines, as always. Let's dig into this week's top stories. Two weeks ago, Israel as a nation turned 73. And with just over a week to go, Prime Minister Netanyahu is trying to form the 36th government in Israel's history. That works out to a new government every two years, if my math is right. Charlie, help us understand why Israel struggles to form and keep a government, and how frustrating is the political process for the average Israeli? Yeah, well, let me start by saying that for the average Israeli, the current political situation just isn't that unusual. You know, we're used to a new government lasting for four years until the next election. Uh, That's also the official length of time for Israel as well. However, since 1988, that's the past 33 years, no government has made it through its full four-year term. Hmm. We're used to a two-party system. But in this most recent election, 13 different parties made it into the Knesset and 39 parties were running. Uh, the Likud party received the most seats for, uh, you know, they had a total of 30, but right now it seems almost certain they're not going to be able to build a coalition. Instead, Netanyahu is pushing to keep the Knesset intact, but pass a law requiring a separate direct vote for the prime minister. However, it doesn't look like he's going to succeed. Uh, there's a major effort on the part of the other parties to force Netanyahu out of office and form a so-called unity government 
even though the parties behind the effort have virtually nothing else in common. But to answer the first part of your question, uh, this really doesn't impact the average Israeli in his or her life, or at least it certainly doesn't seem to impact them. Uh, In the UN's recent ranking of world happiness, Israel was listed 12th in the world. By the way, we were listed 19th. Hmm. Uh, So by and large, Israelis are doing well economically and emotionally, and they're not overly stressed out by the four elections they've Hmm. gone through recently or the pandemic. 10% of Israelis now work in the high-tech industry. Hmm. Uh, That helped them avoid the worst of the economic crunch from the pandemic. One of the biggest frustrations for Israel really is housing. Uh, The average Israeli has to save the equivalent of 137 months of salary, that's 11 and a half years, to buy a place to live. Uh, The other frustration is driving. Roads are more congested because car ownership has gone up tenfold in the past 50 years. So while the politics, while confusing and frustrating to us, uh, well, they're just part of everyday life in Israel. They're more focused on working, saving, buying a house and car, and then sitting in traffic and blowing their horns at all the other drivers. (laughs) Well, Israel might average a national election every two years, but the Palestinian Authority hasn't held parliamentary elections in over 15 years. Now there's talk of postponing the election scheduled for next month. Why would they delay an election that is already long overdue? Well, the official reason it might be delayed is because Israel won't let the Palestinians hold elections in East Jerusalem. Now, that's not the whole story. Israel won't allow polling places to be set up in East Jerusalem because Israel unified Jerusalem and made it the capital of their country. Uh, It would be relatively easy for the Palestinian Authority either to set up polling places just outside Jerusalem or to allow people in East Jerusalem to vote by absentee ballots. But not having polling places inside the city could be a convenient excuse to again postpone the elections. Uh, If the elections do get postponed, the real reason will be that the Fatah party of Palestinian Authority President Abbas is in total disarray. There are several factions within Fatah running against Abbas's slate of candidates. It's likely the vote within Fatah will be split along these different factions, and Abbas could potentially lose to one of his rivals. It's also entirely possible that such division will allow Hamas to come out of the election with the largest number of seats, giving them control. A report in a Palestinian newspaper said the U.S. has quietly told the Palestinian Authority that we would not object if they postpone the election because a Hamas victory could end prospects for a two-state solution Hmm. and a Palestinian state. Other leaders in Fatah are also urging Abbas to postpone the election in light of the divisions within their party that could lead to that election loss. They're suggesting a special initiative before the election to heal the rifts in the party and create consensus. And it's also possible some are encouraging Abbas and his longtime cronies to withdraw from the race and allow some of the younger and more popular Fatah members to run. Now, all that to say, don't be surprised if the election is postponed, with Israel conveniently being blamed for that decision. But if it is postponed, just know there's more to the story than what will be officially reported. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, noted Israel scholar, Dr. Charlie Dyer who's traveled to the Holy Land more than 100 times. Story number three, Lebanon is on the verge of collapse, and apparently Hezbollah is working to benefit from the economic turmoil. Why can't the government of Lebanon seem to get its act together, and how dangerous could Hezbollah become? Yeah, right now, Lebanon is a basket case. Part of the problem is the country is composed of Sunni Muslims, Shiite Muslims, and Christians, and each has an assigned role in the government. 
But over the past 70 years or so, the percentages within those populations have shifted. Uh, right now, the Shiites have become the most dominant, uh, and that's where Hezbollah is based. Another part of the problem is that the country has been ruled by powerful political families who've grown rich while much of the country stagnated. Political infighting and assassinations have also brought the government to a standstill. Now, the average worker in Lebanon has seen the value of his salary decline by 90%, and that's just in the last year or so, with the collapse of the Lebanese currency. A new prime minister was named in October, but in the past six months, he's failed to form a new government. He wants a cabinet of technocrats and experts who can make the hard but necessary changes needed to get the country back on its feet. But other groups, including Hezbollah, want a mixed cabinet of experts and individuals loyal to their constituencies. Mm. And Hezbollah has been using that impasse to increase its influence. Using fuel and funds from Iran, Hezbollah has set up low-cost schools and hospitals and has been distributing food and heating oil to the poor. They've also paid their employees in U.S. dollars, while everyone else in Lebanon gets paid in the highly devalued Lebanese pounds. Half the population is living in poverty, and Hezbollah is positioning itself as the champion of the poor and the needy. Now, the problem is that they'll use their added influence to push the country into a closer alliance with Iran and toward confrontation with Israel. And should war eventually break out, John, the impact will be devastating to the entire country of Lebanon. Hmm. And do you think war is a distinct possibility? Uh, I think it is. I don't think Hezbollah wants war right now. Uh, they'd like to be in an even stronger position. But uh, frankly, that is a possibility. Hmm. Archaeologists announced they have discovered the alphabet's missing link at the site of ancient Lachish in Israel. What exactly are the uh, ABCs of this missing link that they've uncovered, and is this story particularly important? Well, the so-called missing link is a fragment or a shard of a pottery jar that had six letters written on it in two rows. A grain discovered near this fragment was carbon dated to around 1450 BC, which is how they were able to date the writing on the jar. Uh, by the way, that's right about the time of the Exodus for those of us who take the dating in the Bible at face value. The jar fragment shows that writing existed in the region of Canaan at that time. Archaeologists are calling it a missing link because it fills in a gap between the early examples of alphabetic writing from Egypt and then later examples found in the region of Canaan. Now, the inscription itself, it's rather unimpressive. Scholars believe the six letters might form two words, and they aren't sure what the two words mean, though they think they might be parts of two names. Uh, the letters in the first word spelled out slave or servant, but the same combination of letters can also be found in other words or names. The second set of letters could be read as honey or nectar, but they could also be part of an otherwise unknown name. So you go, well, then what makes this so important? Well, for me, it's the reminder that writing did exist in the time of Moses and the Exodus. It's a reminder that there's no problem assuming Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. He grew up in Egypt and had advanced training, but he also lived for 40 years in Midian in the Sinai region. And the specific way the letters were written, you know, they did change over time, but the letters themselves were definitely around and in use at the time of the Exodus. And that's a good point for us to remember. Thanks, Charlie. Well, if you travel to the Middle East, you know that figs are plentiful. Figs somehow connected to your devotional later on, Charlie? Yeah, they are. We're going to be meeting the fig nipper from Tekoa, Amos the prophet. All right, we'll look forward to that. But before we get there, we're headed for a discussion on anti-Israel propaganda and anti-Semitism, the facts you need to know. That's all coming up on today's edition of The Land of the Book, including a fresh look at your Bible questions. Stick around. 
grew up in Jerusalem, earned a PhD, and then his job transferred him to Senegal, West Africa. From there, he came to Chicago. Now, just who is this guy, and how can he help us understand anti-Semitism? Well, you'll meet him yourself next on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to segment two of our program. I'm John Geiger. We're really honored to have with us as a guest, Dr. Daniel Ashheim. He serves as counsel for public diplomacy at the Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest. Dr. Ashheim comes to Chicago from West Africa, where he served as deputy chief of mission at the Israeli embassy in Dakar, Senegal. I've been there, by the way. Uh, as counsel for public diplomacy, he oversees media, culture, academic, and Jewish community issues in the consulate's nine-state Midwestern region. Before becoming a diplomat, Dr. Ashheim, a Jerusalem native, worked as a director and advisor in the public and non-government organizational sectors. He was also a senior trainer in business, public, and education sectors. This is what I like. When not working, Daniel loves traveling, of course, not so much during COVID, history, food, and politics. He's married to Elisa, a father to Ella, and their small dog, Tommy, it's great to connect with you today on The Land and the Book, Daniel. Thank you very much, John, for this introduction. It's my honor being with you on the show today. Well, let's start with your life as a kid. Uh, your fondest memory, maybe, growing up in Jerusalem is what? I think growing up in Jerusalem is the most exciting thing one can have. I mean, this is the place where history is being alive. It's not only an idea, a dream of people all around the world. It's actually the place where I call home. And I think the combination between the place, the most holy place for Christians, for Jews, for Muslims yes. all around the world, and being a teenager there, a child there, going to school there, working there, starting my diplomatic career there, all of these things happened in Jerusalem. And for me, this is my heart and this is my soul. Yeah. Well, you live in a part of the nation that sees plenty of geopolitical stresses played out. So dare I ask, what's your most frightening memory you might have had growing up? Any? Definitely, John. I remember as a teenager when people go out all over the world, go to parties, go out, have fun, go out to eat. I remember myself walking and thinking which bus is going to blow up, God forbid, but it happened on a daily basis, which restaurant will blow up in front of me. And living in Jerusalem during the second intifada, the uprising, the Palestinian terrorism, things happening on a daily basis. This is a teenager living, a normal teenager living in abnormal conditions. This mm. is a lot of my memory as a child, living in tough times and also better in good times. But this was very, very challenging. And Jerusalem, as you know, is a place where a lot of these tensions are at place between religions, between populations. And we suffered a lot from terrorism during those years. Well, you've never lacked for interesting things to talk about over dinner, though. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes it was too interesting. Sometimes yeah. I wish it would have been more boring and regular. Well, I like this part of your bio here. It says you worked as a concierge at the iconic King David Hotel. Uh, this is where presidents and movie stars stay. They don't just hire anybody for that position. We'll get to movie stars in a moment. Uh, how did you, though, get hired there? I mean, what are the qualifications and how did that, how did that come to be? Actually, John, it was, it was pretty much by mistake. I came back from my, after the army trip. Israelis go after the army for long-term trips. I went to Thailand, Australia, and China for six months. 
I returned and I said, I need to find a summer job before I'm going to university in October. I returned in May. I started walking in the streets of Jerusalem, looked right, left. I said to King David, I used to swim there as a child. Why not try my luck? I went inside. <laughs> Got in, said, hi, are you looking for workers? And there was a woman there who told me, yes, we're looking for people at reception. So I said, why not? I'll do a summer job for a few months. Started a reception, three months at reception. I saw it was enough for me. You know, with all due respect, there's a lot of respect. But then you get all the complaints. People tell you the hotel is too small, the towels are too wet, the things are not good enough. And I said, the other side in front of the lobby sits the concierge. And the concierge is the one who people ask him with a smile, where do you recommend having something for dinner? Which site should I visit? Where should I shop? What should I do? And there suddenly the spark in the eyes begins. And I said, this is my goal. This is what I want to do. And after a lot of convincing efforts, I moved there and I fell in love with the job. And I found myself there for five years, completing two degrees and having other jobs simultaneously. But there was really where I began my career. Yeah. Well, walking through the doors of the King David Hotel are a wide array of folks, including, well, presidents and world leaders. Who did you happen to glimpse there at the hotel in the uh, political spectrum? Oof, an end. We had President Obama there. We had Mitt Romney there. We had Putin there. We had Angela Merkel. We had the presidents of France, of Great Britain, really all over the world. We had all the leaders coming there. I saw them face to face. It's truly remarkable experience. Yeah. Well, before becoming a diplomat, Daniel Ashheim, a Jerusalem native, worked as a director and advisor in the public and non-government organization sectors. He was also a senior trainer in business, public and education sectors. He's our guest today on The Land and the Book. Talk about your Ph.D. studies, your focus, and uh, what did you do along those lines? So my Ph.D. topic dealt with Bruno Kreisky, who was the Jewish-Austrian Chancellor of Austria between 1970 and 1983. He was the first leader in Europe to talk about the two-state solution and to acknowledge the PLO as the representatives of the Palestinians. And he was the most hated person in Israel. He was Mm -hmm. the most loved person in Austria. And I tried through interviewing people from his cabinet and government and people who knew him together with archival material, to get a more a broader understanding of who this man was, what was his dilemmas with his Jewish identity, why was he so sensitive for things connected to Jewishness, to Israel, and more. So it was a fascinating topic for me. I was very excited reading about it and seeing the complexities and the problematic aspects of the person altogether. Hmm. Now, I don't think of West Africa as being home to a large Jewish population, but suddenly... You were serving in Senegal, West Africa. Your role there and a highlight for you in Senegal. First of all, you're right. I think the amount of Jews there, you can count them. I think they all came for dinner on on Passover to our place. (laughs) The whole (laughs) Jewish population of Senegal and West Africa, we had elections. Unfortunately, we have too many elections recently in Israel. But the two elections that I was heading, we had seven voters who were eligible to vote there, Israelis who could vote. So Mm. we're talking about a very small Israeli and Jewish community. Nevertheless, it was a fascinating experience. I was the deputy, deputy ambassador responsible for many things connected to the diplomatic aspects, the economy, culture, media, and also connected to consular affairs. And 
during my term there, the two years that I spent there, were responsible for five sub-Saharan countries, most of them with Muslim majorities. So it was a, also a fabulous cultural experience. It was both challenging, intriguing, and fascinating altogether. And we put a lot of emphasis on the fields of innovation, helping Senegal become the startup nation of Africa using the Israeli experience and Israeli know-how. Well, let's steer our conversation in a less pleasant direction, but one we have to address, and that's anti-Israel propaganda. Globally and locally, there seems to be a steady, if not sharp, increase. How would you assess anti-Israel propaganda here in the United States? Well, John, thank you for raising this point, because this is really a very important point to emphasize. Anti-Semitism is not something that passed or something that we learn about in history books and something that we need to condemn historically. Unfortunately, we are still living it in Europe and here in the United States in various regions coming from the right and coming from the left. It's not a political matter. It's a humanitarian cause. And every person in this country and in the world who is against hatred, against hate crime, against discrimination, should stand against anti-Semitism and be clear about it. There's no yes, but, or yes, perhaps. Anti-Semitism should be condemned in any way. And we see this rising sometimes in the form of anti-Israel. People saying, you know, we are not anti-Semites. The last thing we are is anti-Semites. You know, people say, some of my best friends are Jews. Nevertheless, we're against the state of Israel. Mm. And here we see many, many problematic aspects that people are connecting anti-Zionism anti-Israel is something which is legitimate. They think it's legitimate to discuss whether the state of Israel should exist or not. And those who, who are in this discourse, I see them as anti-Semites. So you can have legitimate criticism on many policies. It's completely okay, and I don't have any problem, or Israel doesn't have any problem with legitimate criticism. The problem happens when this is not legitimate, and this has become undermining the existence of the only Jewish state. Dr. Daniel Ashheim serves as counsel for public diplomacy at the Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest. He comes to Chicago from West Africa, where he served as deputy chief of mission at the Israeli embassy in Dakar. Well, how about another example of anti-Israel propaganda that you have encountered, maybe by surprise, uh, in your time in America? I will tell you, I'm less concerned for minor things, you know, a graffiti here, a graffiti there. Of course, it should be condemned, and the person who is an idiot, sorry, but he is or she, should, they should be punished for that. I'm more worried about the subtle underneath tendencies that sometimes look like it's connected to academic discourse in campuses. People say it's connected to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and to say, yes, there are academic debates about whether the state of Israel should exist or not, whether there's place for the Jewish state, whether Zionism is yes or no. Now, it's important, John, eventually to understand, we, a lot of people have criticism about North Korea, about their policies, about their international way. No one ever discusses whether it's legitimate that North Korea exists or not. Mm. And it's, of course, it's legitimate. People say it's obviously they're a state. Only the Israel is the only country in the world that people are asking, should it exist or not? And this is clear anti-Semitism, because yes. it's not connected to violations of certain policies or, or difference in ideals. And I think that this is the most problematic aspect that we are encountering. And every person who cares about social justice, human rights, fighting hate crimes, and fighting 
human rights violations should stand firm against anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. What about the apparent bias in much of our media's coverage of Israel? It seems like things are just not portrayed accurately or, or fairly sometimes. True. At times, Israel faces media, international media, which is unfair and is dealt with from various reasons in a way that is not treating other countries. And there are various reasons for it. I do not want to say that everyone is an anti-Semite or everyone who has criticism towards Israel is, is against Israel. Nevertheless, you have to be very accurate when you report about a conflict zone. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a very challenging zone, and one has to understand the nuances and to understand it's not a black-and-white situation. And when there's a terrorist who stabs or kills or explodes, he's not a militant and he's not a militia fighter. He's a terrorist who, who aims to kill civilians. And those who try to make an equation between the IDF, the Israeli army, who does everything possible to avoid human casualties, civilian casualties, and sometimes by mistake there is a casualties, and we condemn that as well. On the other hand, the other side is aiming to kill as many civilians as possible. So this is not an equal equation. And here we need to be very clear about that also when we read in press reports, and sometimes it's not very clear. Yeah. So in the New Testament, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Let me ask you, Daniel, what's one thing Christian radio listeners can do to fight the trend toward anti-Semitism? First, continue to be firm supporters of the state of Israel and the Jewish people, like we see many, many evangelical communities around the United States, but not only. We see many different Christians who are firm supporters of the state of Israel. They support it by talking for Israel, by preaching for Israel, by praying for Israel, by giving funds for things in Israel. So we highly appreciate that, and I think what I would say is continue the great work being a real supporter of the state of Israel for the future of all humanity and keep up the good work. I think I would say God is thanking you, the state of Israel is thanking you, and we all together and Jews, Christians together will fight hatred and will fight for love of each other. This has been a great conversation. I'll give you the last word on anti-Semitism. You've got 30 seconds. Take it. Anti-Semitism may look like it's against Jews, but it could be against every one of you tomorrow. And therefore, it's all of our responsibility to fight anti-Semitism as much as it's our responsibility fighting hate crimes. Dr. Daniel Ashheim, who is Counsel for Public Diplomacy at the Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest, we thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, John, and thank you to all the listeners in the show today. I wish you a healthy year full of success and happiness. And we'll be sure to have you back soon. Up next on The Land of the Book, it's questions, yours, with Charlie Dyer's answers, next. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Charlie Dyer, our host, John Gager, his sidekick, Always intrigued with your questions, and they come to us via email. So if there's something that's been uh, puzzling in your mind, something that you have wrestled with about the Scriptures, the Holy Land, maybe uh, prophecy, those are all welcome when you write the land and the book 
at moody.edu. Let's start with Marvin's question. He takes us to Exodus 30, verse 12. It says there, each one must pay a ransom for his life. Then no plague will come. What is this? How is this different from the tithe? And why does it say ransom? How does this fit in with the rest of the law? And do Jews still pay this ransom every census? Yeah, and I'll start at the very last part of your question. I don't believe this is still being done today. Now, God only had Israel conduct a census, really, for two reasons in the Bible. One was to number males 20 years old and upward in preparing for fighting. And they were fighting, by the way, God's wars. Uh, The second was to provide support for the operation of the tabernacle and then later the temple. So in Exodus 30, verses 13 and 14, I, I think what he's saying is this census was being done to help support the tabernacle. Now, in terms of how this was a ransom for a person's life, so no plague will come, well, the passage doesn't make that as clear as we might like. So what I'm about to say, well, okay, this is one of those, again, where you use that grain of salt. Uh, One possibility is that God saying the payment is intended as a ransom in the sense of providing protection against God's judgment, which is mentioned here as a plague. That is, God is saying that those who fail to pay, and we know people who've been cheating on taxes for centuries, are going to be judged by God with physical punishment. But another possibility is that the payment was intended to represent a symbolic buying back of that person's life from the Lord. Uh, The payment acknowledging that their lives did indeed belong to God. And this could relate to the events in Exodus 12 and 13, where after the angel of the Lord killed the firstborn males of Egypt, God then told Israel to consecrate the firstborn males to himself. So Israel was to redeem or buy back that child. Now, I'm not saying here the concept of redeeming through payment is a similar concept, but uh, the events in Exodus 12 seem to be parallel to what's happening in Exodus 30. So it's likely the contributions for the tabernacle in Exodus 30 are what later became the basis for the temple tax that we hear about in the New Testament. Interesting question here from Gene. He says, we know Moses received the best education that ancient Egypt had to offer growing up in Pharaoh's court. He would have certainly been introduced to the various creation myths of other cultures in that region of the world. I don't necessarily consider all myths entirely bad. Don't some of them convey important truths? For example, both Job and Isaiah refer to Leviathan, apparently an ancient sea monster referred to in the myths of the other Near Eastern cultures. In Isaiah 27, verse 1, the prophet says God will punish Leviathan, that crooked serpent, the dragon in the sea. Is he not saying there is a reality behind the myth that Satan is the dragon portrayed in these stories who will ultimately be defeated by Yahweh? If so, is it not possible that Moses drew upon his knowledge of other ancient creation myths to pen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to be sure, the Genesis story of the beginnings? Yeah, and I'm going to have to say right here, people listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. Uh, The Bible does use imagery from the ancient Near East, including references to Leviathan. They are in the Bible. I do see some of these as references to Satan, just as you suggested. Uh, Some are also poetic allusions to Egypt and to other enemies of Israel. Now, the only spot where I might diverge, though, is putting too much connection to Moses's training in the court of Egypt. And the reason I say that is that a lot of these references come not from Egypt, but from Canaan and Assyria and Babylon. Babylon and in that region. Of course, Abraham was originally from Ur, so the knowledge of these stories could have been passed down as part of the nation's collective conscience. Uh, It's also possible they were known in Egypt, though I'm not sure the extent to which they would have impacted Egypt's training of its elite. But here's two other points. First, my personal opinion is that these other accounts and the Genesis account point back to a common basis in reality. That is, the events, the creation, the flood, etc., really did happen. 
The Bible preserves an accurate picture of what took place, while the stories in other cultures became corrupted over time. And second, I do agree that there really isn't a problem with the authors of Scripture using words and allusions from the myths in other accounts to present biblical truth. Let me give a poor illustration from today. It might be like a pastor describing the story of, of Hanukkah and the rebellion of the Maccabees as the Empire Strikes Back. Now, he's not connecting Hanukkah to the Star Wars films or the mythology that surrounds them. He's simply borrowing common imagery to convey historical truth to his current audience. And biblical writers did that on occasion as well. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're intrigued with the things that intrigue you when it comes to the scriptures. And uh, your questions are welcome at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Peggy asks, were the saints who rose from the dead at the time of Christ's crucifixion, described in Matthew 27, in natural bodies or supernatural bodies? It doesn't mention their souls, only their bodies. And where did they go after they went into Jerusalem and appeared to many? Okay, Peggy, I start with one key truth. Uh, Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead in a glorified body. Paul says Christ was the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians 15. All other resurrections prior to that were resuscitations, and those resuscitated, like Lazarus, eventually died again. So if the individuals being described by Matthew were raised prior to the resurrection of Jesus, then it was just a temporary return to life. But that leads to the bigger issue. Why is Matthew the only gospel that includes this event? And why does he say those who were resurrected appeared to people in Jerusalem after Jesus's resurrection? I believe Matthew is expecting his Jewish audience to understand the relationship of Jesus to the Jewish spring feasts. You know, Passover, Jesus was the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world. He was the ultimate Passover Lamb. And that's followed by first fruits, which is Jesus' resurrection being a fulfillment of Leviticus 23 on first fruits. That took place the day after the Sabbath of Passover, that is, the Sunday following Passover. So I believe Matthew's describing Old Testament believing saints who were really resurrected with Jesus on Sunday. Their tombs cracked open by an earthquake on Friday, and no one could repair them on the Sabbath. And then on Sunday, they were part of the first fruits with Jesus, following him out of their tombs in resurrected bodies. They then likely ascended to heaven when Jesus did 40 days later. They were additional witnesses to the Jewish people in Jerusalem of the resurrection of the Messiah and his fulfillment of the Jewish spring feasts. And I assume their souls and spirits were reunited with their resurrected bodies, just as Jesus was on that Easter Sunday morning. We're covering a lot of ground today, and we often do. Maybe you'd like to hear it all again. That's where our podcast comes in handy. It's available at thelandandthebook.org. Look for the podcast at thelandandthebook.org. From Marsha, this question. I'm confused about Rahab. In the book of Joshua, she is a prostitute. But because of her help and faith, she is not only saved from the destruction, she marries an Israelite and becomes a part of the genealogy of Jesus. But in other books of the Bible, Psalms, Isaiah, Job, Rahab is referred to rather badly. Rahab the do-nothing. By his wisdom, it says, he cut Rahab to pieces, and you crushed Rahab. Is there more than one Rahab? Yeah, the short answer is, yes, there is. And in English, this does look confusing. But the Hebrew actually helps solve the problem. The woman who hid the spies and who became part of the genealogies of both David and Jesus should probably be called Rahab because the middle letter in Hebrew is the guttural hate sound. It, it's like trying to clear your throat while pronouncing the letter H. 
In contrast, the Rahab in Job and in Psalms and Isaiah is actually spelled with the soft letter H sound in the middle. Now, the identity of this Rahab takes just a little bit of explanation. In ancient Near Eastern mythology, Rahab was a mythical sea monster, a god of chaos, and the monster was slain by another god who used the remains to create the world. The Bible writers weren't saying that such a god existed or that they believed those stories to be true. Rather, they used that imagery to describe how God defeated Israel's enemies. In some of the passages, Rahab's used as a figure of speech to refer to Egypt. Uh, by the way, we do the same thing today, and here's another illustration as I used earlier in our discussion. Uh, you might tell someone that they look like they're bearing the weight of the world on their shoulders. Now, by doing that, you're not automatically saying that you believe in the Greek myth that the god Atlas literally carries the world on his shoulders. You're just using the imagery to convey a point, point. and when they talk about Rahab the sea monster, that's what the biblical writers are doing. So back to the original question. There are two different Rahabs in the Bible, and they're spelled differently in Hebrew, which does help us clearly distinguish between them. Troy says, I read recently that according to legend, 80% of the Israelites did not participate in the exodus from Egypt. Do you agree? I don't agree with that statement, and I don't see any historical basis for it. Uh, we know that there was virtually no intermingling culturally between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. In fact, uh, in Genesis 46, it says the Hebrews were shepherds, and they were assigned place in Goshen because all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Uh, we also know that the Egyptians became afraid of the Hebrews. Uh, they made them work. They made them slaves. They were killing the male children. Uh, now, to suggest then that 80% of the Hebrews would somehow suggest to remain in in Egypt under slavery with their children being put to death just seems unthinkable in light of the facts that we do have in the Bible. Thanks, Charlie. Great questions that have come in, and we appreciate your answers, and we're looking forward to your devotional. It's just ahead next on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger asking, do you like figs? That's right, figs. You say, I've never had one. Well, maybe you haven't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm crazy about figs, but I do like fig newtons. Low-fat, tasty, good for you, almost, if cookies can be. Well, coming up in his devotional, Charlie Dyer takes a look at God's fig-nipping preacher. It's a look at the life of Amos. Let's pause before we get to that, though, and take in this Holy Land experience. Hi, I'm Kathleen. I've read so many times of the Exodus and Moses trekking through the desert, and I pictured this flat surface. And guess what? Now I know why all the Jews complained. <laughs> that ground is anything but level. It just is such a horrible trek. I don't know how they did it for 40 years. Hi, my name is Lynn, and my Holy Land experience was an awakening to me. I always thought that uh, the wilderness was a flat plain, dry, and just very desolate. But when we were at the Wadi Kilt, and I saw those hills up and down, and I thought to myself, you know, that's so much like life. You have the mountaintop experiences, the low valleys where you run into problems, but God is with you all the time, molding you, shaping you to do His will. He's not the best known of all the minor prophets, Amos. 
but he's the subject today of Charlie Dyer's devotional. Charlie, I am very interested in where you're going with all this today. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty uh, has been a classic for almost 75 years. I remember reading the story in high school. I can still hear the onomatopoetic refrain running through the story, to pukada, 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 pukada. What is it about the story that seems to have held our interest for so long? I think it's the reality that most of us are, at heart, Walter Mitty. Uh, We daydream about living exciting lives and doing heroic deeds, all the while plodding through life in predictable mediocrity. The walls of our comfort zone are thick and high, and dreaming about living outside those walls is much easier than actually attempting to do so. Let's face it, most people like to play to their strengths, to do things that are routine and predictable and comfortable and hopefully successful. Our fear of failure keeps us on the well-worn pathways that have helped us succeed in the past. But sometimes God calls on us to play to our weaknesses, to do things outside our comfort zone, to blaze new trails, to go beyond the horizons of our own limitations. And those times can be incredibly stressful. Just ask Amos, the fig-nipping shepherd from Tekoa. The book of Amos tells us quite a bit about its author. In the first few verses of the book, Amos tells us that he was a sheep herder from Tekoa. Now, we tend to skip over those details, but they're really quite significant. Amos doesn't use the word that describes the lonely shepherd watching over a flock of sheep. The word he uses describes a sheep raiser or sheep breeder. Amos didn't just watch the sheep, he owned them. In 714, he also described himself as a herdsman. In a society that measured success by the size of one's flocks and herds, Amos must have been a reasonably successful stockbroker. His hometown, Tekoa, fits perfectly with his main occupation. The town was five miles southeast of Bethlehem on the edge of the Judean wilderness, astride a road that leads from Jerusalem and Bethlehem to En Gedi along the shore of the Dead Sea. The town was fortified by Solomon's son, Rehoboam, to guard this strategic road. And later, about a century before Amos, King Jehoshaphat led the army and choir of Jerusalem past the town into the wilderness of Tekoa to face an army that had gathered at En Gedi. Amos wasn't some backwoods hick. He was a successful businessman living in a strategic town along an important road that led from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem. Amos gives us one additional clue about himself, though at first it seems rather mystifying. At one point in chapter 7, he calls himself a grower of sycamore figs. Our first impression might be of a man tending to a grove of fig trees near his house, but that impression would be wrong. First, the trees are sycamore fig trees. That's not the same as a regular fig tree. A sycamore fig tree grows much taller and requires a moderate climate. It also needs a great deal of water, more than it would receive from the rainfall in Tekoa. Sycamore fig trees grew in the low foothills closer to the Mediterranean, and they also grew in warm, well-watered spots in the Jordan Valley, like Jericho. Remember when Zacchaeus, who lived in Jericho, climbed up into the sycamore tree? It was a sycamore fig tree. Sycamore figs just don't grow in Tekoa, so Amos had to be a man on the move. Now, Amos doesn't actually say he's a grower of these trees, though that's what many Bible translations read. The word used by Amos is the word nipper. He was a nipper of sycamore figs. The fig-like fruit of the sycamore tree required a great deal of attention as it ripened. Each embryonic fruit had to be pierced or nipped and then wiped with oil. And a large sycamore fig tree could have 
thousands of these fruit. So what was Amos doing nipping figs, most likely in a place like Jericho? I thought he was a herdsman and a sheep breeder. Amos was a wise businessman. In the summer months, when the already sparse vegetation in the wilderness near Tekoa was grazed out, Amos must have taken his flocks and herds down to the region around Jericho, a spot where powerful springs provide water and grass for grazing. Most likely, he worked out a deal with the local farmers. Allow my sheep and cattle to graze among the grass growing in your orchards, and while I'm watching over them, I'll help you nip the sycamore figs ripening in the trees. This one tiny statement lets us know Amos traveled beyond his hometown and that he likely had contact with the people of Jericho who were part of the northern kingdom of Israel. So what does an itinerant, fig-nipping sheep herder have to do with you and me? Well, let's go back to Walter Mitty. Like Walter, Amos's life was successful but predictable. It was defined by the growing season of the sycamore fig and the amount of rain that fell on the wilderness outside Tekoa. Amos was a godly man, but his life revolved around agriculture. At one point, he admits that he wasn't in the business of religion. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. Amos wasn't a professional prophet like an Elijah or Elisha, nor was he one of the so-called sons of the prophets, the circle of disciples who gathered around these great men. So when he finally admits that the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel, He's telling us he was definitely out of his comfort zone. And yet, Amos obeyed when God called him to leave his flock and become God's messenger to the kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel was in deep peril, and God needed someone to warn them of their impending doom. The assignment wasn't easy or convenient or profitable for Amos, but God still commanded him to go, and Amos obeyed. Next week, we'll follow Amos on this journey north to see why God's call was so urgent. But as we say goodbye to him for now, what lesson can we take away from our first encounter with this amazing man? Perhaps it's this. Are there any areas in your life where you sense God might want to move you out of your comfort zone? It might be something as simple as reaching out to a new neighbor or volunteering to serve in some capacity at your church. Or you might sense God tugging at your pocketbook and your budget, asking you to make some financial sacrifices to help a ministry he's placed on your heart. Or he might be calling on you to leave a very comfortable job to serve him in a new and special way. God delights in moving us out of life's ruts into a new pathway of service for him. The path might not always be as well marked, but the one calling us to follow is an excellent guide. And that's an excellent reminder. Thanks, Charlie. You know, if you enjoy Charlie's devotional, you'll especially appreciate 30 Days in the Land with Jesus. This is a collection of some of the devotionals that we've aired on previous broadcasts, available from Moody Publishers. It's called 30 Days in the Land with Jesus. You can learn more about it at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Just click on the Books tab there that you see. Again, it's called 30 Days in the in the land with Jesus. Also at the website is a link to our Facebook page. Give it a click and get better informed about current events in the Middle East. Also at the website, a way for you to find out what's coming up in future broadcasts, to learn more about our guests. And of course, there's a link there that allows you to email us. You don't need the click for that though. Let me give you our email address. It's the land and the book at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. 
www.ruthvanderbilt.edu. Hey, thanks for carving out time to listen today. And thanks for letting the management at this station know what the land of the book has meant to you. Why not drop them a card, a letter, or maybe an email this week? Thank you for doing that. There's a lot of competition for airtime these days, and we appreciate your standing with us. I'm John Gager saying thanks for hanging out with us. And thanks as well to our team. That's Dan Anderson, our producer, Charlie Dyer, our host, and I'm John Gager. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.